Please turn with me in your Bible to Isaiah chapter 31. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many, and in horsemen because they are very strong, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. And yet he is wise and brings disaster. He does not call back his words, but will arise against the house of evildoers and against the helpers of those who do iniquity. The Egyptians are man and not God, and their horses are flesh and not spirit. When the Lord stretches out his hand, the helper will stumble, and he who is helped will fall, and they will all perish together. For thus the Lord said to me, as a lion or a young lion growls over his prey, and when a band of shepherds is calling, is called out against him, is not terrified by their shouting or daunted at their noise, so the Lord of hosts will come down to fight on Mount Zion and on its hill. Like birds hovering, so the Lord of hosts will protect Jerusalem. He will protect and deliver it. He will spare and rescue it. Turn to him from whom people have deeply revolted, O children of Israel. For in that day, everyone shall cast away his idols of silver and his idols of gold, which your hands have sinfully made for you. And the Assyrian shall fall by a sword, not of man. And a sword, not of man, shall devour him. And he shall flee from the sword, and his young men shall be put to forced labor. His rock shall pass away in terror, and his officers desert the standard in panic, declares the Lord, whose fire is in Zion and whose furnace is in Jerusalem. Behold, a king will reign in righteousness, and princes will rule in justice. I'd rather translate the first part of the next verse this way. Instead of each will be like, A man will be like a hiding place from the wind, a shelter from the storm, like streams of water in a dry place, like the shade of a great rock in a weary land. Then the eyes of those who see will not be closed, and the ears of those who hear will give attention. The heart of the hasty will understand and know, and the tongue of the stammerers will hasten to speak distinctly. The fool will no more be called noble, nor the scoundrel said to be honorable. For the fool speaks folly, and his heart is busy with iniquity, to practice ungodliness, to utter error concerning the Lord to leave the craving of the hungry unsatisfied and to deprive the thirsty of drink. As for the scoundrel, his devices are evil. He plans wicked schemes to ruin the poor with lying words, even when the plea of the needy is right. But he who is noble plans noble things, and on noble things he stands. Rise up, you women who are at ease. Hear my voice. You complacent daughters, give ear to my speech. In little more than a year, you will shudder, you complacent women, for the grape harvest fails, the fruit harvest will not come. Tremble, you women who are at ease, shudder, you complacent ones. Strip and make yourselves bare and tie sackcloth around your waist. Beat your breasts for the pleasant fields, for the fruitful vine, for the soil of my people growing up in thorns and briars. Yes, for all the joyous houses in the exultant city. For the palace is forsaken, the populous city deserted. 
The hill and the watchtower will become dens forever, a joy of wild donkeys, a pasture of flocks, until the Spirit is poured upon us from on high, and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field, and the fruitful field is deemed a forest. Then justice will dwell in the wilderness, and the righteous abide in the fruitful field. And the effect of righteousness will be peace, and the result of righteousness, quietness and trust forever. My people will abide in a peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings, and in quiet resting places. And it will hail when the forest falls down, and the city will be utterly laid low. Happy are you who sow beside all waters, who let the feet of the ox and the donkey range free. This is the word of God. Now we're going to explain that as we move through it. Heartbroken people met in a field in Pennsylvania where United Flight 93 crashed on September 11, 2001. It was a memorial service for their loved ones who had died there. Uh, Lisa Beamer, you know, whose husband Todd had, along with other men on the plane, led a revolt against the hijackers, uh, was there at the memorial service, and she later wrote, I couldn't help but compare this service to the one the day before. Todd's memorial service in church had been so uplifting, so inspiring, because the emphasis had been on hope in the midst of crisis. On Monday, as I listened to the well-intentioned speakers who were doing their best to comfort, but with little, if any, direct reference to the power of God to sustain us, I felt I was sliding helplessly down a high mountain into a deep crevasse. As much as I appreciated the kindness of the wonderful people who tried to encourage us, that afternoon was actually one of the lowest points in my grieving. It wasn't the people or even the place. Instead, it struck me how hopeless the world is when God is factored out of the equation. Sincere cliches and looking on the bright side and saying, well, that's just the way things go, is not enough. We need God. And if we factor God out of the equation, we strip ourselves bare before the blast of life's brutalities. But if we factor God into the equation, we can face anything. Now, God has made commitments to us. I will guide you with my eye upon you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. My grace is sufficient for you. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Fear not, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Now, what makes us into world beaters is a sense of God's loving commitment to us, a sense on the heart of his power on our behalf. That awakening in the heart is what helps us to live not with resignation, but with confidence and expectation. 
Jonathan Edwards explained that human beings make contact with reality at two levels. We know things at two levels. We grasp things with conceptual knowledge in our heads, and we enter into things with the sense of the heart. It's the difference between reading a recipe for apple pie and actually putting a piece of warm apple pie a la mode into your mouth. And God has made us to know him at both levels, both with the thought of our minds and with the sense of our hearts. And when the assurances that he's given us in the Bible melt into our hearts, we experience the transforming power of hope. Now, Isaiah ministered in a time when people needed hope and courage as we do today. But the people he was ministering to had only a theoretical knowledge of God to get them through their crisis, which at this time in their situation was the threat of a Syrian invasion. Their beliefs had not yet penetrated into their hearts. So in their practical struggle, although they believed the right things, their beliefs kept losing the argument. Expediency and desperation were driving them. The prophet understands their need and our need. And so he shows us the way forward into spiritual insight. Spiritual insight. And you see the structure of his passage before you and how the message unfolds in the bulletin on page 14. Isaiah is answering a question. When God seems theoretical and unreal and unhelpful for our very real crises in this life, how do we find our way back? And Isaiah's answer is the grace of God. We need the grace of confrontation. We need That's point B1. We need to repent. And we need to listen as well. That's point B2. But even more, we need the grace of provision. In addition to confrontation, we need the grace of provision. We become new as our king reigns over us in righteousness. That's point C1 in the outline. And as his spirit is poured upon us, and that's point C2 in the outline. Now, what I want to do is this. I want to look with special attention at the prologue, point A1, because that sets the stage for everything else. So we're going to linger a bit longer at that point, 31, 1 through 5, and then we're going to turn on the jets through the rest of the passage. So first of all, the undeniable power of God, verse 1, chapter 31. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. Now, this is the key to the whole passage. And, <clears throat> and the question here, we look at verse 1 and we, the question is obvious. What's wrong with going down to Egypt for help? Why is God offended by that? The Assyrian army was threatening little Judah. Why not form an alliance with Egypt? Well, the first problem, Isaiah says, is that Judah is not looking to their Holy One or consulting the Lord. They believe in Him. 
But the way they actually work through this problem treats God as if he were not enough. Isaiah understands that some helps, they're going down to Egypt for help, some helps are incompatible with God. For example, if you need money, it is not wrong to get a job and go to work. But it is wrong to steal. You can work and trust God at the same time, but you can't steal and trust God at the same time because stealing factors God out as if he didn't care, as if he were not enough, as if we were not under his careful eye. And what God wants is that we look to him and trust him in ways that count so that he can prove to us how much he cares and the fullness that is ours in him. But any so-called help that diminishes our experience of God always turns out to be just another Egyptian slave master. Now we can think of Egypt then. How does this apply to us? Going down to Egypt for help. We can think of Egypt as a cipher for anything I think I need outside the promises of God. Anything I think I need outside the promises of God. And that's why Judah was wrong to go down to Egypt for help. God had declared his commitment to them. Their biblical creed was some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. David wrote that centuries before in Psalm 20. But when they went down to Egypt for the help God had promised them, they went back to the bondage God had saved them from in the first place. They're throwing their salvation into reverse gear. They're holding in contempt the power and the love of God. They're exposing their hearts to the idols of Egypt. In spite of his promises, they expect nothing from God. He's just a beautiful theory. While their modus operandi for actual living says, in effect, whatever gain I have in Christ, I count as loss for the sake of the world. I have suffered the loss of Christ and count him as rubbish in order that I may gain the world. And every life is making a statement about the real life value of Jesus. We all feel vulnerable. We all need help. But Jesus means it when he says, as we read a few minutes ago, let not your hearts be troubled. Whatever is facing you, he looks us in the eye. He says, let not your heart be troubled. Now, how do we get there? What do we need to understand to experience his serenity? We need to understand that the Assyria, whatever it is, the Assyria threatening us is not our real crisis. Our real crisis is our compulsive unbelief in God. Our real danger is not when we're exposed to the brutalities of life. Our real danger is when our hearts are not filled with a sense of God. What we most need is not to find a way to cope with the distress immediately before us. What we most need is heart-level reality with God so that we can live then out of the fullness He gives, whatever life may bring. So Judah's first problem is that they are not living by faith in God. 
They do not sense that the battle is the Lord's, which in fact is a great comfort. The second problem with Judah's alliance with Egypt is the flip side. They are trusting in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong. In other words, they are, they are overly impressed with what human minds and human plans and human skill can control and manage and understand. The Puritans used to call this mentality earthly-mindedness. But trusting in many chariots, that's the attractive thing, many, and strong horsemen, again, that's the attractive thing, strong, it never works. It never works. It only compounds our, our feelings of nakedness because we're always left wondering who has more chariots and who has stronger horsemen out there. There's no hope for us in that. When we step outside the promises of God, when He is not enough, we only enter into anxiety and uncertainty. So what we need is to stop this whole way of thinking and ask a deeper question. What is the real world? Verse 2. And yet He, God, is wise and brings disaster. He does not call back His words. Now, when we see things going wrong, we should never think, as sometimes we do, I mean, we don't put it in these words, but this is the feeling we have. Oh, poor God. He sure has gotten himself into a tight spot. What is he going to do now? No, he is wise. The royal counselors in Jerusalem think they're so smart, dealing with things as they are from their point of view. But God is smart too. Judah's diplomats think they're wise enough to avert disaster with Assyria by going down to Egypt. But God is wise enough to use their brilliant plans to bring disaster. And if God is in our troubles, then the only way forward is His way, trusting in His promises. All the Egypts in the world are going to do us no good. But God's words are the fixed point in the confusion of life that we can absolutely count on. Verse 3. The Egyptians are man and not God, and their horses are flesh and not spirit. Now, when you think about it, that's an odd thing to say. Who had ever proposed or claimed that the Egyptians were God or that their horses were spirit? Whoever said that? But sometimes... We need a closer look at the obvious to see it again and again until it finally makes an impact. Flesh, here's the point, flesh, however great and strong, is no match for spirit, however abstract and elusive. After all, God is spirit. Now, isn't this the very point at which our faith struggles and sometimes breaks down? Isn't this it? Our problems are earthly and concrete enough. And God's spiritual remedies sometimes seem irrelevant, don't they? Think about it. The word translated spirit here in our verse is also used in the Old Testament for wind, 
in Ecclesiastes 1 and elsewhere. That word is also used for the merest breeze, Psalm 78, spirit. What is it? It's airy and insubstantial. It's just a breath. What kind of help is that here in this world? But God is spirit. And he's saying here that spirit is stronger than flesh. He's saying that an unseen ally is more reliable than a seen, visible ally. And he's implying that if we live out of tangible earthly resources alone, we are actually disempowering ourselves. Now, this is true all the way up at the level of our cultural mythology. The modern view is that there's nothing in the universe greater than man. We factor God out of the equation and see ourselves at the top of the evolutionary heap. So the future of the race lies with us and so forth. All the implications fall into place. But that myth has only made the world more tragic. Thinking that we are the apex of reality has given rise to despots like Stalin and Hitler and Mao. And this is true right down at the level of our day-to-day problems as well, personally. The richness and fullness of life come from that which is spiritual, not earthly. Money, for example, can buy a house, but it can't make that house into a home. Money can put food on the table, but it can't bring laughter and joy around that table. Money can fly you to Paris, but it can't kindle romance there. What money can do is make you an attractive target for thieves and lawsuits. There's no security in money. There's no life for us in any tangible thing. What makes for life comes not from this world and not from our efforts but from the grace of God. Therefore, a heart at one with God is the secret to true life. To have God is to have all things. To trust Him is to be unconquerable. God hides his best gifts in improbable packages. The spiritual nature of true life, that's so frustrating to us. But this is not something God failed to foresee. He set it up this way on purpose. The foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1. And he wants everybody to know it. So that no flesh will boast in his presence. And therefore, we catch on to the way life really works. When we look away from this world and humble ourselves like children so that we relearn everything from the ground up and start all over again. Now in verses 4 and 5, Isaiah reinforces his vision of God's effortless power and care on our behalf with two similes. He says that God is like a lion In his unperturbed sovereignty, here's a lion standing astride his prey. 
some helpless little lamb or something. And the lion hears the voice of the shepherds shouting, beating the bushes, trying to scare the lion. And he just laughs. Or whatever lions do. The lions don't laugh. What they? He just purrs. And God, he also says, there's a second simile here, God is like a bird in his gentle protection. He's like a lion in his unperturbed sovereignty. He's like a bird in his gentle protection. God is both. In other words, God is all we need. And whatever valid helps God does give us in this life for our benefit, find their value and meaning only in their derivation from Him. So how do we get back on track with a God like this? Our part is to return. Now we come to the rest of the passage. Our part is to return and to listen. And His part, more wonderfully, is His messianic king and his outpoured spirit. Let's look at each one. First, verses 6 and 7. Turn to him from whom people have deeply revolted, O children of Israel. For in that day everyone shall cast away his idols of silver and his idols of gold, which your hands have sinfully made for you. Now, Isaiah is talking here about repentance, turning back to God, and he's also talking about renunciation, Renunciation, throwing away our idols. Why? Because there's no other way to get beyond theory into experience with God. Now, when he says in verse 8 that Assyria is going to fall, but by a superhuman sword, he's saying, forget about Assyria. Factor them out of the equation. I'm the one you need to think about. I'm all the help you need. And then in verse 9, when he uses that fire and furnace imagery, that's an Old Testament way of... If, have you read uh, the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis? You know the Christ figure is a lion, Aslan? That's an, that's an Old Testament way of saying Aslan is not a tame lion. Our divine ally, our best friend, is also a living fire. And being singed by him is one of the best things that ever happens to us. The conviction of sin is our gateway into joyful freshness with God. Have you ever experienced the thrill of renouncing some precious idol, some hard-won token of power or superiority or whatever else? Isaiah says that when we turn to the one from whom we have deeply revolted, something happens. In that day, Isaiah says, we throw away our idols of silver and gold. We finally see how contemptible is a self-image unsurrendered to Jesus Christ. That's what an idol does. It obscures Christ and magnifies self-idealization, self-exaltation. And that's why our idols are so precious to us. We pour so much hope and so much effort and expense into becoming our dreams. But however precious an idol is to us, the loss of it is a happy event. The heart awakened to the value of Jesus does not ask what price must be paid in renunciation. 
And as long as our hearts are wondering if we can afford the loss of self, the price will always seem too high to pay. But here's the wonderful thing. Isaiah is saying, turn back to him now. And in that day, when you do, turn back to him now with your idols, as you are. And in that day, he will graciously help you to suffer the loss of all things to gain Christ. And you won't regret it. Because he is life. Chapter 32, we come to the Messianic King. Verse 1, Behold, a king will reign in righteousness, and princes will rule in justice. A man will be like a... Referring back to the king, but ambiguously for effect. A man will be like a hiding place from the wind, a shelter from the storm, like streams of water in a dry place, like the shade of a great rock in a weary land. Now, Do you notice back in chapter 31, verse 9, do you see the reference to the rock of Assyria there? Now, that rock is a metaphor for the king of Assyria. So by contrast, in chapter 32, verse 1, here's our king. And unlike the megalomaniacs of human power, our Messiah reigns in righteousness. That's the operative word. His righteous rule makes him a shelter from the storm. This is a king who comes not to be served, but to serve. And Isaiah is saying that Messiah's, the Messiah's lordship is what makes us into new people. As important as repentance and renunciation are, when he talks about our newness, he's talking about that in connection with our Messiah's righteous reign. The newness he brings is his answer to all the failed human ideals of history. According to verses 3 and 4, it's his righteous lordship that takes away our dullness and awakens us again to spiritual alertness. And he does it through the gospel. As the eyes of our heart are enlightened so that we see and sense the hope and riches and power that are ours in him. And when these bright new convictions, you see, enter into the heart, the church is changed According to verses 5 through 8, new values, new convictions, a new way of seeing things. New heroes stand forth as their true worth is recognized. But it's all the effect of the Lordship of Christ. It's His nobility dignifying us. It's His truth satisfying the longings of our hearts. He makes noble plans and He stands for noble things And therefore, we who believe in him should never grovel at the feet of any Egypt or idol. Jesus is enough. And we enter into his newness by surrendering to his lordship. Then, verse 9, hear the word of the prophet, verse 9. This is our part again. Rise up, you women who are at ease. Hear my voice. You complacent daughters, give ear to my speech. Now, Is Isaiah picking on the women? Well, in a way, yes. He certainly is He's singling them out. Why? Let's look at it. Look at the text. As Isaiah writes this, it's harvest time. We surmise that from verse 10. So it's a time of plenty. The houses are joyous and the city is exultant. We see that in verse 13. But Isaiah is warning the women that next year... 
the crop will fail. That's the point of verse 10. So he's saying, stop partying, start mourning. Now, what is the prophet saying here? He's saying that the ladies of Jerusalem are blatant illustrations of spiritual complacency. The word complacent appears three times in verses 9 through 11. Now, there's nothing wrong with a life of quietness and peace. We know that from verse 17. But that's not what these women, that's not the way they're living. These women have no taste for anything except that which is earthly and immediate. So here is the truth, stranger than fiction, that Isaiah can see among God's people. The men at the royal court are wringing their hands over Assyria, fretting over a danger God has already promised to take care of. The women at home can't see beyond the great bargains in the marketplace. They're not worried about anything. And what Isaiah sees in them is a happiness of the kind that will kill us. Contentment with no longing for God. Here's the point. The messianic kingdom is no place for escapist, elitist, selfish materialism. But there is a way back to God. And His way out of our soul-destroying complacency is right here before us in this section. We need to listen to the prophetic word with a heart so open that we accept even hard truths calling us to radical change. God understands us and knows our needs so thoroughly that the gospel includes even this. Listen, from James chapter 4. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord. And then what? Then what? And he will exalt you. Then the outpoured spirit. Verse 15, until the Spirit is poured upon us from on high and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field and the fruitful field is deemed a forest, new life is just exploding, then justice will dwell in the wilderness and righteousness abide in the fruitful field and the effect of righteousness will be peace and the result of righteousness, quietness and trust forever. My people will abide in a peaceful habitation in secure dwellings in quiet resting places. And I love this. You see what the passage is coming full circle now. Do you see that the, the spiritual nature of God reappears in the text now? So the passage comes round, but now we see that the Spirit of God is mega reality dominating everything else. God is promising here to pour out His Spirit upon us all with life-enriching abundance. He is not talking about a little drop here and there. He is talking about immersing us in a deluge of the Holy Spirit. He is talking about the, the Spirit being outpoured, washing all complacency away, removing that counterfeit joy, and bringing in real joy in peace and quietness 
and trust forever. God aims to prove how great a resource he is with a spirit-given righteousness that renews the church. And the wonderful thing is God is keeping that promise even now. It began 2,000 years ago at that Pentecost recorded in Acts chapter 2. And he, he has continued to pour out his spirit upon his church, sometimes with astonishing abundance. Romans chapter 5 says that he pours his very love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And this drenching of our hearts in the love of God, Paul says in Romans 5, is the very thing that enables us to boast in our sufferings with an unconquerable joy. Our part is to be open to the Spirit, to desire and pray for and to welcome the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon us. The Lordship of Christ and the outpouring of the Spirit, these are the secret power and life of the church and nothing else is. That's what Isaiah is saying. So finally, we come to the epilogue, the undeniable truth of God, in verses 19 and 20. Strange verses in a way, but they do make sense. And it will hail when the forest falls down, and the city will be utterly laid low. Happy are you who sow beside all waters, who let the feet of the ox and the donkey range free. <laughs> what is he saying? Isaiah, here he's, he's concluding the passage and he wants to leave with us two complementary truths lying side by side. He's been saying to us, you don't need to go down to Egypt for help. You don't need to step outside the promises of God. He's enough for you. It's going to be all right. And now he concludes by saying two things. One, in verse 19, the newness that God brings does not leave our familiar world unchanged. The forest of Assyria is cut down and the city of Zion is humbled. Whenever God moves, both the world and the church are in for some surprises. The blessing of God does not work around the world and the church as they presently are. The blessing of God challenges and remakes everything in a new way. But the upheaval of God's blessing is worth it. That's Isaiah's second truth. In verse 20, here's what he's doing. He's painting a picture of a beautiful, peaceful Richly supplied pastoral scene with plenty of water and such a bumper crop that nobody even bothers to chase the animals out of the fields. They don't even care. That's what he's saying. It's a very Old Testamentish way of saying what Paul says in the New Testament. All things are yours whether the world or life or death or the present or the future, all things are yours and you belong to Christ and Christ is God's. So what more do you need? At the end of the day, the most direct way 
into our hearts is the fact that the God who is spirit became flesh for us. And the God who is power became weak for us. And the God who is wise became foolish for us at his cross. And that's why we can stop treating him like a beautiful theory and turn to him and listen to him and trust him. Amen.